Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode 37, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by two guests, Jerrica Washington, director of the Jack E. Barr Center for Wellbeing at San Mar Family and Community Services, and also Keith Fanjoy, chief executive officer of the same organization. San Mar Family and Community Services is an organization based in Maryland. Um, I got to know them through their sponsorship of a very well-organized bicycle ride across the uh, Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, which was very fun and happens every year in July. So if you're a cyclist and you're interested in community or mental health, I encourage you to join. Um, but the organization has a really great mission. Um, they're doing a lot of interesting things related to child welfare, mental health care, foster care, community services. So I've got them both on today to uh, tell me more about their organization and and the ins and outs of you know working with children for their benefit. So. Jerrica and Keith, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you. So maybe we can start just kind of from the beginning, both for you guys personally and also for Sanmar. So happy to take one of you at a time, just telling me about how you got into this line of work. And um, at some point, whoever feels uh, best equipped to tell me about the history of Sanmar, jump right in. Yeah, so um, I actually grew up in Maryland, so Sanmar was something that I was familiar with um, when I was a child, um, just hearing about the girls that live in a group home um, in a pretty rural area in Maryland. Um, and I actually always wanted to work here. So um, that's the, the interesting part about this is that when I had this opportunity to come in um, back in 2015, I was able to do that and, and came in at a place that um, you know, the, the group homes were closing at that time, and it was um, the task of trying to determine what was going to happen next. So um, with me being a few years into the field of social work, um, having this interesting opportunity come up to where I would be able to um, sit next to uh, the former director and, you know, assist him in trying to figure out how we could continue our mission, but also um, how to pivot and, and move and serve the needs of the community. So um, that's how I got started. And now um, being in the role as director of an outpatient mental health clinic that uh, almost six years ago was not um, a part of Sanmar. So I'm happy to, to be here and I'm happy that I fulfilled my, my life dream of, of working at Sanmar. You can retire now. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah, you're all done. <laughs> uh, thanks, Jerry. Yeah. And so, um, uh, not too dissimilar story uh, for me, which is that um, when I started my social work career, uh, I was in uh, Baltimore City area, um, but I was familiar uh, with Sanmar in the region um, and uh, relocated here and began my time as a foster care case manager and slowly uh, had took on different roles with the organization. Um, at the time, as Jerrica mentioned, we operated residential programs that I supported uh, and eventually uh, took on a role of helping to redesign the organization towards a more proactive and preventative way of supporting kids. And so, um, you know, I think the thing that has kept me at Sanmar, I'm in my 17th year here, the thing that has kept me here has really been um, the other organizations that I've been a part of or know of. Um, there, there are many great places, but Sanmar is a special place because it really does drill down to what's in the best interest of the child, even at times to the detriment of the organization. And so it feels really good to be in an organization that has such a laser focused commitment to uh, doing the right thing and doing right by the kids that we serve. And so that's certainly what has kept me here. Awesome. Yeah, lots of follow ups there. But first of all, that thing you mentioned at the end definitely piqued my interest. So what, what are some situations in which the needs of the children seem to trump uh, maybe some of the um, optics or other, other characteristics of the organization that might maybe not be uh, supported by a decision that necessarily uh, needs to support the child? Yeah, that's a big question. And what might be helpful for the audience is to maybe take a moment and give a snapshot of our current operation and then I think we can maybe more directly answer that question in terms of um, some of those scenarios that might be a little bit more out of the box than what's normal. So uh, you, you talked a little bit about um, Sanmar and so did Jerrica. And so we're a 139-year-old organization. For about 100 years of that history, we were an orphanage or a, a long-term group care environment. 
in the in the mid '80s, my predecessor Bruce Anderson transitioned the organization to a gender specific uh, residential program for teenage girls that had experienced abuse and neglect. And the um, the focus on that time was really responding to an unmet need in the state. There were many services available for boys. There was not as many services available for teenage girls. So for those next 30 years, 1985 or so, till about 2015 or 2016, that's really what San Mar was known for, serving teenage girls in a residential capacity. Over the course of that 30 years, we also opened a treatment foster care program that served boys and girls of all ages in foster care. So Sanmar was really known for that, but in the 2010s, 2013 timeframe, we started to really examine uh, long-term success of the kids that were in our care and how do we do a better job of not just really having great outcomes for the kids while they're with us, but how do we position them for long-term success after they leave our organization? And so as we did that, we started to hear a lot of best practices from other parts of the United States and really, I think the lightning bolt moment started when we were hearing from other organizations in other parts of the country that said, yes, that systems of care can be quite rigid and lack a lot of the kinds of coordination that families need to be successful. But here's how we did it within that rigid system. And so we were hearing feedback from organizations that would say, yes, the system is broken, but so what? We can still work with inside that if we're willing to change and be flexible. And so we brought that back into Sanmar, and that led to some very bold, transformative types of decisions. The biggest one and the hardest one to kind of communicate to the general public was that we were going to close all of our residential programs because everybody had such a passion and a clear sense of how meaningful that service was. And our challenge was to turn around and communicate back to them Yes, but what if we could prevent that child from ever having to come into our residential program? What if we could meet the needs of that child and that family in the community of which they came from? And so uh, to make quite a long story short, uh, we went through a very intentional process of slowly closing our residential programs through attrition, meaning that um, we slowly went through the process of when kids left, we didn't bring new kids in and then closed one group home at a time. And at the conclusion of that process, we began opening more proactive services. So we opened the Jackie Barr Mental Health Center, which is an outpatient mental health clinic in kind of a traditional model. We continued to provide treatment foster care, which we had done in local family homes that we'd licensed and trained. And then we opened something that was a fairly big idea, which is uh, embedded neighborhood services where we could meet the needs of local families in their community of or origin through a traditional type of wraparound case management that we had people in a local field office. That's called Bester Community of Hope, which is a very broad service array. Basically, whatever the folks in that community are telling us they need, we try to work hard to offer it, whether it be free after school programming, free health resources, uh, in-home voluntary services, uh, or even neighborhood organizing and events. So that's really a mouthful because in the old days, you could just say Sanmar where the girls live. And now what we talk about is Sanmar, there's this continuum of preventative services that are helping families be stronger. So I think it's just important as we talk about the work that we pursue, people may understand Sanmar in the lens of what we used to do in terms of residential programming. And now we've had to really recommunicate a new strategy of how we help kids and families. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for making that clear. I think I was confused for a long time, especially when I signed up for the bike ride. I was trying to raise money for it and just trying to describe what exactly Sanmar did. But it seems like since you guys do so many um, distinct things, it can take a moment to really understand the scope of, of your work. So I have a question about the need, um, maybe in Maryland or just generally. So the kinds of families or the kinds of children or teenage girls we're talking about, uh, maybe they're having like problems at home or um, maybe they're, they're um, being put up for foster care or maybe they're having um, substance abuse issues or what, like how, how big is the problem and, and um, 
you know, like what's what's the scope of it? Because uh, I think a lot of people listening might not be familiar with this um, world of community services. So, you know, for us, we we serve children, you know, boys and girls and, and family. So um, the scope can be as small as just our community, our one mile radius of Boonesboro, Maryland, um, to Washington County, to to nationwide. We have um, children that are in our, our foster care system that are from different states. Um, we focus in on, on a certain radius um, from our campus, but um, the stretch can be very wide. And it's important to, to realize that when we say families, we mean um, families that are biological parents. You know, we have children that are living in foster care, but uh, connecting to to their parents that they may return to. Um, so how can we connect with that family that may be um, down the street or or maybe be in a different state and still have that connection to where um, when they go back home, it, it looks different, you know, and, and they feel comfortable with that child in the home and they feel like um, they have the tools to to work um, and, and be a family. Um, so the stretch can be, you know, nationwide um, if we really look look really into it. Um, yeah, the only thing I would add there is that um, each of those divisions of Sanmar are an integrated collective body, but they all have a little bit of a separate uh, focus. So, you know, in treatment foster care, kids are entering into systems of care because of a child is in need of assistance legally. And that means that there is either a safety concern relating to their mental health or a safety concern in the community or home where there's abuse or neglect that is occurring. And so those oftentimes, 80% of the time, child welfare cases are because of a neglect situation, that there is an unmet need that the child is experiencing that is repetitively happening and the government has decided that this child is in need of additional services and an out-of-home placement potentially. 20% of the time, it is a more defined abuse situation, physical abuse, sexual abuse, other types of abuse that are bringing those children into care. And so when it's neglect, it most often looks like home family homelessness, uh, unmet needs in terms of uh, basic needs of a child being met. It could also look like neglect in terms of um, a severe substance abuse challenge that the family is experiencing, and that is leading towards unsupervised kids or kids not being picked up from school or daycare or those kinds of things. But when the Child Protective Service Agency arrives to evaluate what's happening, they're really seeing that the parent is having a very severe crisis that they need to focus on and these children need to be somewhere else while the parent has their needs met. So uh, again, foster care is a little bit more focused on stabilization and safety. Mental health, that child is living in the community, right? Oftentimes, we certainly do services for kids placed in foster care, but we're trying to meet with children or their parents um, in a proactive way because that child is in the community, in their family of origin. And then finally, with Bester Community of Hope, it looks a lot more like voluntary services. Let's say you lived in a, in, in a community where there was a lot of significant poverty and you needed help and you would access a place like Bester Community of Hope to get your basic needs met so that you could reduce some of those stressors that could lead to abuse, neglect or those types of things. So it depends. You know, I hate to give kind of a vague answer, but it depends on the program and it depends on the need. I see. So when you are talking about the basic needs being served by the Vester community, are you talking about like food or shelter or things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's concrete supports. Uh, it's really um, there is a, the Center for the Study of Social Policy has uh, a, a lot of good material called uh, the Protective Factors Framework. And there's a big five items that um, they think are the descriptors of uh, traits of a healthy family that is meeting the needs of their children. And one of those are concrete supports in a time of need. And so uh, the example of the providing basic services is usually Bester Community of Hope because it's a voluntary program, which means you have to want us to be there, right? Or someone's referred you to us and it's our job to engage you in a way that matters to you, not in terms of <clears throat> our agenda, but in terms of what you want. So, so often when we first interact with 
a family that's been referred to us, we're really not talking about treatment priorities or uh, basic types of things. We're really trying to build a safe and positive relationship with a family so that they know that we can be a trustworthy partner to help them meet their needs. Got it. And uh, the whole umbrella of Sandbar is, so are you guys a nonprofit? Yes. Okay. So the funding that you get, is that mostly from donors or also like government um, support for uh, children? That's right. So uh, uh, the answer again is it depends. So like our mental health service is primarily funded through insurance reimbursement, the majority of which is publicly reimbursable insurance through medical assistance. Our Community of Hope program is purely grant funded through a mix of various grant entities. Um, and then our treatment foster care program, we receive a daily rate for children placed in foster care to reimburse both the costs of a foster family as well as our costs as an agency. So each of those arms of the organization is funded through a different mechanism. Got it. And then you have the bike ride. Right. So philanthropy is a part of it. Yeah, we have a development officer um, who and a team that helps us to have a mix of how we help to underwrite uh, the gap between what government will pay for to provide the kinds of services that we offer and what it actually costs to do that very well, you know. And so government uh, has a commitment and, frankly, a responsibility to ensure that services are available, but they won't always pay what it actually costs in the private sector to do the work. Um, so philanthropy uh, is really intended to cover that 20% difference between what the government gives you and what it actually costs to do the work. And we're fairly frugal and we do a lot of things really well and collaboratively, but philanthropy is usually three things. Individual gifts from private donors, you know, like if you wanted to give us $20 or your friends wanted to give something off their paycheck, that's one revenue stream. Businesses and uh, foundations and other corporations will give us money as a part of their corporate social responsibility. And then, of course, special events. This year, we had two significant special events with a gala. And then our annual event, which you uh, got a chance to enjoy, is the Great Bicycle Tour, which raises over $100,000 for us each year, which is critical for us to be able to do all these kinds of things that we're asking to do. So it's um, it, all of it matters. All those different ways of making money matter. And rest assured, uh, we are certainly not making a profit. <laughs> so... You know, in 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 the context of like a lot of the episodes that have been on the podcast before, we're talking about like different therapy frameworks, which could address people in times of like really um, heightened needs, some some desperate need, or just you know I'm having this problem with my partner. You know, I have some stress at home. Let let's talk about it. But I guess in, in the context of um, helping these children, maybe maybe not in all of the parts of the umbrella, like maybe. Um, some of the more proactive um, arms, things are less dire, but it sounds like when you're meeting children's needs in the context, there is a pretty urgent situation going on. Is it fair to say that like, it's it's not just like someone having like a small problem, like most of the times when you're intervening, it is a sort of crisis or emergency? Mm, I would say about 80% of the time it is a crisis or emergency. Um, we do have um, families, like you said, that just come in and are having communication problems with their child or um, having issues. A lot of the times um, in the last few years, it's been returning to school, um, in-person environment, in-person learning, and how to transition um, back to that as someone living with anxiety. Um, so some of that is just um, helping them coordinate with the school. Um, it's a little bit of case management and that that um, concept of wraparound services, you know, um, doing a little bit extra uh, as a therapist would do, um, you know, starting in a session and that's it. These will do a little bit more in, in communicating with, with um, other professionals in, in our community and that are working with the family to help them. So um, it does, for the most part, you know, we are working with um, children that are uh, in need of assistance as far as the court goes or uh, in foster care or in a residential uh, group home. There are some still uh, around. Um, but a lot of times, you know, we are working with that family. We, our identified patient is the child, but we're really working with that family to help them um, come 
take a step back and, and kind of get back down to their, their normal after experiencing some type of crisis. I think it would be helpful also to, um, in the lens of your podcast of talking about what are some of the influencing pieces of research and influencing philosophies for us to talk a little bit about Sanmar through the lens of a structural approach. And what I mean when I say that is that Sanmar, from the day I stepped on the campus, um, because we've had such a laser-focused priority on how we serve kids, um, I was taken aback when I first arrived here that the difference between this place and other places that I had been uh, was there was a much more common sense and fairly basic type of approach to meeting the needs of children. And so when we get into these uh, mental health dialogues specifically, there can be a slant that's very focused on what does the research say? What are the evidence-based practices that are being implemented? And I absolutely believe that those are valid and appropriate questions to ask. But many organizations slant too far towards kind of being driven by those um, interventions as opposed to being informed by them. And so we're really informed by, I would say, a couple key things. Um, some of the, uh, the, the, the first section would be really around our core values as an organization and that how that influences all of our behavior as staff members across our three service lines. The other one would be, um, the emerging brain science that is out there and how we need to be more, uh, developmentally aware about where people are. Both of those sound like kind of sophisticated um, responses to meeting basic needs, but in many ways, it's taking a complicated um, bucket of information and how does a client experience it in a very simple way. And so I think for us to talk a little bit about some of the brain science that has emerged over the last couple of decades, as well as this thread of unconditional care core values we have as an agency. So I'll talk a little bit about some of the brain science and maybe Jerrica, if you want to talk a little bit about our values and kind of how we arrived there and where that came from. In terms of the, the neuroscience, um, we have been tremendously influenced by uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, who now is a very uh, well-known, <laughs> reputable uh, author who came out with a book, What Happened? Um, you know, what happened to you with uh, Oprah Winfrey, and everyone's now uh, talking about him. Uh, but we've been very interested in some of his research prior to that time. And uh, very complex and trying to understand how the, uh, the traumatized brain works or the brain that has been impacted by some type of mental health challenge works. Um, but I think a great illustration of that is... Um, uh, in terms of both understanding the challenge and responding to the challenge is something that he calls the three R's. And so the three R's for Dr. Bruce Perry um, are regulate, relate, and reason. And so what that means in terms of the sequential order, <clears throat> the neurosequential order that you support the needs of a child, a family, or anybody that's in crisis is that the first thing that you have to do before anything else can happen is to help regulate the uh, emotions and feelings that a person is experiencing. And so to translate that into a very common sense terminology, you have to help someone feel safe, right? If someone doesn't feel safe, you're really not going to become friends with them and help them solve problems. And so how do you help someone to feel safe? Well, listening creating safety through listening and room for someone to share openly and honestly what's happening. Is listening an evidence-based practice? I mean, there are diverse ways to listen. There are diverse ways to respond during listening, but it is that um, really simple way um, that we go about creating safety. Um, and sometimes that looks like diverse ways of doing it. So somebody comes in that's been referred to us and we might create safety through listening by also being providing hospitality. Mm -hmm. We could provide, uh, someone comes in hungry, we give them a meal before we start. We give uh, 
take them to the bathroom. We do all kinds of basic things to say, I want to make sure your needs are met first. Okay. So that's all within a word regulate. We help someone to regulate when they can't maybe help regulate themselves at this time. The second R is relate. And so that really is explaining the way in which um, the brain is hardwired to build meaningful relationships and it needs those relationships to accomplish its goals, to have meaning, to feel connected in the world. And so what's fascinating is that the brain, the way it works, will not allow you to build a healthy, meaningful and lasting relationship if you do not feel safe with that person. So the key being healthy, lasting, meaningful, right? And so that's true for us as staff and providers, right? We want to create meaningful relationships with folks where they feel uh, that they trust us to be their advocate. And so again, if I was drilling that down to a word for regulate, it's safety and listening. For relate, it's really about trust. Do I trust this person to share with them everything that's going on? And do I feel good about my relationship with them? The final R is reason. Many organizations start with reason. There's a problem, let's solve it, right? The danger is how do you create lasting change for folks? It really requires safety and trust to first be in place. So again, there's very complex research from Dr. Perry about these things. The real challenge is to take sophisticated information and make it a very simple process where we say, make them feel safe, help earn trust and relationship and connection so that we can work together to support them in solving their own problems. So that was kind of a long-winded explanation, but that's just an example of how from an organizational perspective, all our staff in all the departments learn this information. And we hope that that influences the way in which they behave and act towards the people we serve, no matter which division of our organization it is. Yeah, that makes sense. And thanks for making that clear. I definitely have a lot of questions about the frameworks and the background that informs your guys's work. And I guess I would ask, because we've mentioned it a few times so far, what wraparound services refers to. It sounds like maybe it's the work outside of the therapy room, but maybe you can uh, answer that a little bit better than I can. So what I'll do here is maybe Jerrica can really, that's a great lead in to some of our unconditional care values as an organization and really the roots of that, um, because uh, certainly she's been directly involved in how that's been created. Yeah. So that wraparound services, that really includes everything. It includes sitting inside that therapy room um, and throughout throughout all of our, our different programs and really focusing in on our, our principles of, of unconditional care here at Sanmar. We have uh, seven of those and it's whatever it takes, better together, relationships matter, having fun is priority, and every, everyone has strengths. And in looking at all, all of those, you know, as Keith was saying that all of our staff um, know these and, and put these into practice, but we also try to do these things in our, in our, uh, in the therapy room and in our room kind of uh, is not just a room. Sometimes it's, it's outside. It's, it's um, at the school. We do a lot of school-based work. Um, it's through, you know, telehealth. So it's a lot of different ways in which we, we provide those services now, but um, thinking of, of whatever it takes is, is what if this was your child? And we, we say that when we go into, um, when we go into our sessions, when we first meet, meet someone and hear their story, you know, what if, what if this was your family member? What, what would you want um, to see? What would you want to encounter? What would you want to get out of um, coming and, and seeing someone uh, as a therapist? So um, that's one of the main things. And one of the things that oftentimes comes up a lot is just that sense of urgency when people are calling in and saying, I need help, um, putting ourselves in the, in that person's shoes and, and thinking about that. Um, and thinking about, you know, partnering, um, the, 
the basic tenant tenant of wraparound services is um, looking at the caregiver, that parent as a partner. Um, oftentimes we sit in a room um, as professionals and and forget about the uh, the identified client, forget about their their parent that is sitting right there in the room and asking them, what do you think is best for your child? What, what do you need? What are the tools that you need to help um, your child get out of this space that they're in? Um, and a lot of times we forget that, but um, wraparound services reminds us of, of looking at the parent as just the same partner as the other people in the room. Um, and even if it's just a therapy room, looking at, at that relationship as a team, um, how we how we can help the child um, who is our is our client, but also help that family member deal with that client that is outside of that 45, 50 minute session um, because that's who they live with. So um, just thinking about, you know, we can be strong alone, but we can always be, you know, stronger and better together. So um, that's one of the that's two of, you know, my my main ones that I always, always use um, in in doing a session. Yeah, just one other thought there is how we came to arrive at um, framing these values in a way that was cross-cutting across the organization. And so uh, Jerrica uh, and myself and others here have been directly influenced by Dr. Ira Laurie. He was our uh, organizational psychiatrist for almost 20 years and still is a part of the organization as a senior medical consultant. But uh, he was a, a thought leader and really a, a founding thought partner in the, the work of wraparound. A lot of people talk about doing wraparound. A lot of states, a lot of communities and organizations talk about doing wraparound. And frankly, they're not doing it as it was originally designed or intended in a very flexible, creative um, process driven by the person as opposed to the professional. And I think Jerrica said that very well, is that a hallmark of the work, and I think something that's very relevant to this podcast and some of the information that others are thinking about is sometimes um, because of the nature of uh, a mental health challenge, there's a desire to have um, an external person uh, make a diagnosis and an external person to uh, design a treatment strategy that is from uh, an evidence-based service. It doesn't mean that those things are bad. My point, and I think Jerrica's here, is that there is tremendous power in the individual, that it's kind of our job to unlock those things through relationship. And if we have a meaningful relationship where someone feels support, there's a tremendous amount of answers that the individual already has that we need to just mobilize. And so Ira, as a part of our organization, was one of the kind of founding fathers of the wraparound work with Carl Dennis. Um, he's written some great literature out there. And if, if folks want to uh, check out uh, his book, he has a, a book that you can probably find on Amazon called Everything is Normal Until Proved Otherwise that he wrote with Carl Dennis. But it's about the core values. It's about the core ideas. Even Ira, who's brilliant, is really focused focused on these common sense ideas of how we empower people to be their own change agent through helping them walk that journey that they're on. So um, when Jarek is talking about these core values that the organization has uh, as our commitment, they may not be the same in other organizations, but um, uh, it's the commitment to a uh, client-driven process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. That's really useful. Um, I'm curious about like numbers here. So in a given year, I'm, I'm curious about how many uh, children or families you guys are interacting with. And also, if you happen to know just nationally, you know, how many kids are currently in foster care or, or are part of that process at some point in their lives? Yep. Um, so um we're certainly a smaller organization because of the, the region that we are positioned in. And so um, there was a time when we had 50 to 60 kids residentially on our campus. Um, and uh, today uh, we actually serve more people, uh, significantly more people than we previously did. Um, but it, it looks different. And so like in our foster care program, we might at any given time have between 20 and 30 kids in our foster care program living in local families and homes. Um, in our Bester Community of Hope service, we can have between 
200 to 300 individuals that are receiving services in a voluntary capacity through uh, family support work, uh, 100 or so kids in free after school programming, um, a large number of people interacting with our neighborhood based work through community organizing. And then um, Jericho probably has the more uh, current information in terms of the Jackie Barr Center, but I would say anywhere between three and 300 and 350 uh, people connected to that work. And so compared to uh, maybe a larger uh, human service organization, our numbers are not going to be the same uh, volume in terms of the people served. Um, but I think because of um, where we're positioned and the uh, we're about a three and a half million dollar operation in terms of our annual uh, budget, um, we're able to go a little bit deeper with folks than maybe a larger organization could because we're designed around relationships. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, yeah, thanks for that. And do you, do you happen to know just in America as a whole what the numbers might look like? I don't have the current ones, but what I do know is that over the past 10 years, the numbers nationally for child welfare has significantly declined uh, over the past uh, 10 years. However, they have started to creep back up. Um, my last recollection um, was that um, the number of kids in child welfare uh, over the past decade was in the 600,000s, uh, and that's, that's foster care, out-of-home foster care type placements. And that for, through a lot of diligent government legislation and things like that, the numbers were able to creep back down closer to 400,000. Um, but they've started to creep back up. And there's a variety of reasons and excuses for that. Some of them are very legitimate. Others are just because of uh, overutilization of foster care systems as opposed to supporting the family and keeping children safely at home. Um, but I think a big trigger over the past couple years has been uh, the opioid crisis nationally and how families have been impacted by that, which has led to children being placed outside of their home. Mm -hmm. I see. So that, that scenario is one in which maybe like police arrive at a home because of a substance abuse issue. And then maybe uh, someone from uh, the government assesses the needs of the child being unsafe and that's how they might get referred to you. Yeah. So a typical um, situation of that type, that could lead to a foster care placement would be that um, there is a need for a place for the child to go due to a variety of factors. Sometimes those have nothing to do with poor parenting. Sometimes uh, the child's behavior is extremely problematic and the parent is really trying to get support and help. <clears throat> and the only way that they can really access help um, is somehow um, saying to the government, um, I'm not going to step forward and provide for my child, and they are cited for neglect. It's a pretty terrible situation when that happens. And then sometimes that is an act of love on behalf of the parent to try to get the kind of resources that are needed. What that situation will describe to you is exactly why we are trying as an organization to be more focused on providing upfront preventative services because there are so many situations that families experience that government, because of some of the limitations of government, has to wait till something terrible happens in order to react to that situation in a way that is going to bring a menu of resources. Our hope is that we can provide that menu of resources earlier so that a family doesn't have to wait till something terrible happens to get their needs met. Got it. Um, I'm also a little curious about demographics. So would it be fair to say that a lot of the families served are experiencing some level of poverty or, or does that not track? Uh, it depends, right? Mm -hmm. So we have three different arms of the organization still. So uh, it's that diversity in terms of referrals. I would say that a cross-cutting theme is poverty mm -hmm. uh, because in our mental health services, a lot of our clients are MA recipients, uh, medical assistants. A lot of kids in foster care, uh, a good number of them are impacted by neglect. Uh, which could be socioeconomic related, which is a major problem, because if you think about that, that means kids are going into foster care because their parents are poor. Mm -hmm. and that's just unacceptable. And so the system has genuinely tried to do some steps forward to change. It's just not happening fast enough. Um, in terms of our um, community of hope service, I would say 100 percent true. We work in a particular neighborhood, which is a high poverty community. And our hope is by meeting basic needs, relationships, and creating 
this culture of unconditional caring in the neighborhood, kids and families are going to have their need met, needs met, uh, which hopefully reduces the amount of access to more go rigid governmental systems that are reacting to crisis. If I, if I think about, you know, poverty and, and working with, with people in the therapeutic space, I think a lot of times we struggle with trying to coordinate services as far as um, we're trying to provide therapy. There's an environmental stressor. How much of this will be uh, eased if we um, deal with that? Um, so we do it. We, we deal with that. We connect them to resources. We process how how accessible that resource was to them or how the interaction went. Um, so a lot of times um, that does come up, you know, the environmental factors, you know, influencing their mental health and how do we um, take that extra step in, in helping them versus just, just processing it with them. Um, and we, you know, we are a small team. Um, we don't have case managers or things like that, but the community does have them already. So, um, we just access those resources that are already there. Got it. So I'm curious a little bit about like career trajectory, um, like both yours and other people who, you know, might be going to school to get a social work degree, or they might be going to school to get like a mental health counseling degree. Um, what, how, what did that look like for y'all? I guess, um, especially for Jerrica, it seems like you always had this kind of work in mind, but I know that there are a number of different degrees that I think can all lead you to kind of a similar path. So, you know, how, how, um, how was it for, for you guys to make the decision to move into this space as opposed to like private practice, mental health care, which is what people normally think about when they think about therapy. Um, but maybe that's not what they think about when they think about social work, because this seems like in a, in a purer sense, what you might wind up doing if you do get that degree. Um, so maybe one of you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, I think for for me, I always uh, imagined uh, a therapist being a counseling major or, um, you know, not not a social worker. Um, but to know that this is something that you can go into um, makes makes the the degree of social work even even more uh, great because um, you have. Uh, such a wide variety of, of different things that you can do uh, with a social work degree. Um, for me in particular, I did not uh, want to do any type of individual therapy at all. Um, so when I looked for positions and when I got my degree, I knew that I wanted to do some type of community-based health, um, such as working uh, at you know, a community health center um, with maybe a little flavor of case management on the side, but nothing like sitting in a room with someone and just talking to them and then leaving. So um, I think for me, this, this opportunity came up to where I was able to work in an organization and help to develop an outpatient mental health center. Um, that's not something that you usually think of when you think social work, you think uh, a business management degree or something like that would do that would would be the most appropriate person to do that. But I think with that social work degree, you have the passion, you have the skill, um, and to know how to do a little bit of the research to try to figure out what the need is in, in the community. So I think with that degree, it, it opens you up to work from the hospital to, you know, working in a, in a clinic and doing some therapy, um, but also um, being able to help other, other social workers and other um, counselors to, um, you know, if they want to do therapy to do that or to, to expand and, and do other things. So I think the, the field of social work is so, um, it's great in that way. It, it allows you to do lots of things that you may have never thought you were going to be able to do. Yeah, it's funny to watch the uh, progression, you know, but when Jerrica first joined us, uh, and she's a rock star. I think you can pick up on that from our talk here. Um there was not really a passion or desire to think of mental health in the traditional way. And I think what's happened over time is the same way that foster care is a strategy or a way and the community of hope work in terms of our family services or after school, it's a way to make a meaningful connection with someone to help them work through a challenge. Mm -hmm. And so I think mental health at Sanmar, it, it can't just be, the the walls of a 45 minute mental health session it has to be how we 
think holistically about connecting that person outside of just more of a medical model type visit that we want to think about all of the various factors that impact somebody's success outside of just maybe their thought process. Uh, changing or modifying the way that somebody is thinking about or perceiving a situation is very helpful and very important. But doing that in concert with both meeting basic needs, uh, developing meaningful relationships, connecting people to opportunities for celebration and joy, strengthening their family, and the list goes on, right? And so those are the things that create the kind of lasting success for folks um, because I don't think we're totally where we want to be yet as an agency in terms of providing mental health. We're still growing and moving closer to that direction. And we're certainly not perfect in any of our divisions, but I think the key for us is that the guiding principles and values are there and the intentions are there. And I think people who interact with our organization feel that they feel our commitment is more than just you're a number in a visit where we're checking some boxes. Again, don't want to somehow make that kind of declaration that that's what others do, but that is a risk that others could experience that when they interact with, with a provider that is really focused on getting through their big caseload. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I think this might be a good segue to talk a little bit about outcomes. And um, I don't know, I, I guess because of HIPAA, we're sort of um, not allowed to talk in detail about maybe some of the cases that come across you guys' desks, but I wonder if there's any uh, situations that stand out for you guys, either positive or negative, that sort of highlight um, the kind of work that you guys do and, and how it has um, affected you know, children's lives. Yeah, I would say that any any uh, case illustration that we offer is de-identified and, and kind of we change the key identifying markers of someone's story so that um, to protect their information um, the same way that if it was Jericho or and I, what if it was my child? What if it was our family? We wouldn't want our story to be shared in that way, right? But I think the ones that are most helpful um, to learn from um, are ones that of kids that have maybe completed our program and come back as adults to share their successes. And success, um, I think it's a really great question in terms of making sure that the work that we are pursuing is bringing about the long-term outcomes that we hope. Um, the challenge sometimes is success looks very different for different folks. Where do you start and where do you end, right? And so, for example, in in foster care, there may be a child that was in a very, very traumatic circumstance. And as a result of being referred to our foster care organization, they were able to be in a home where they felt safe, where their basic needs were met, and they were able to work through the traumatic experience and therapy, and they were able to be stable at school and complete their education. And so for, you know, for them, that is just an amazing success story. High school graduation, working through their trauma, and being able to hold a job. That may not be the same kind of job that every child in America is going to pursue when they graduate high school or college, but you have to kind of gauge success from where you start and where you finish. And so I would say that's probably true across our programs. Somebody coming in with maybe a complex mental health challenge where they're very unstable, and they're struggling with a lot of symptoms in the community that are um, really, uh, it's making life very difficult to live, whether it be anxiety, depression, or any of those uh, predominant mental health issues. Us being able to help someone cope with those challenges and sometimes provide medication support to some folks, um, it's where you start and where you finish. But I mean, we can get into a variety of, um, of those case examples, but I think that's kind of the overarching ideology there. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. And we don't necessarily need to talk about any in particular. I'm sure um, there's such a variety of them. Um, people can imagine. But I mean, generally speaking, I think that uh, there are countless scenarios of kids that uh, were able to work through trauma and obtain employment, move on to college or get a job, grow, you know, get married and have their own family. Those are wonderful scenarios as well, but not every kid that interacts with our mental health services or foster care uh, services 
walks out of our organization and and it, everything goes perfectly, right? It's really about how do we build in the coping skills and build in the, the reference points so that they understand what healthy looks like. They understand that they are valued unconditionally so that when they experience crisis in the future, they remember. They remember what their experience was with a healthy adult. They remember what the tools and thinking that they learned either in a mental health session or with their foster parent or from this caring, supportive family services worker in the community. So, um, again, it, it depends on where you start. Uh, that really is a big indicator of where somebody might end with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I met a few people on the bike ride who had been a part of, a, of one of your programs when they were little and now they're like successful adults and they're doing the bike ride, raising money. So it seems like um, there's like a lot of community support for Sandmore, like people respect it as an organization and, and think it's doing good things and like to be involved. It seems like there was like a lot of passion on behalf of the volunteers and the staff and also many of the riders um, who I guess have attended now, some of them for perhaps decades. I'll, um, for the for the purpose of your podcast, I'll send you a link to a great video that could be useful that uh, is feedback from some of the past uh, uh, kids and families we've served that are interviewed on a, on a documentary style video. Uh, I'll send you a couple links that if you put them in the information of the podcast, they're great resources for people to watch to learn more about our organization. Sounds great. So, um, yeah, I think we're getting close to the end here. I want to make sure there isn't anything I hadn't asked you. And also, if people are interested more in Sanmar um, in maybe fundraising or donating or volunteering their time, or maybe even someone listening to the podcast who's thinking about a career in mental health and um, wants to learn more, um, where can they visit you? How can they perhaps get involved if that kind of need is, is, is interesting to you guys or, or how can people learn more? I think um, a lot of times when people are starting out in, in social work, a requirement of that is internships and um, being very mindful of, of the internship uh, someone's selecting um, would be important. But of course, uh, Sanmar is um, a space to where we do uh, take on interns. And um, that's a great uh, space to learn, but also uh, to grow and then potentially um, work in the field um, like, you know, working in a nonprofit organization. Always people can visit our website. It, you can visit uh, for mental health, it's jebcenter.com. And for Sanmar, it's sanmarhope.org. And that will uh, direct you to the different programs that we provide. Um, and then also providing a history of our, our organization as well. Gotcha. Well, Jerrica, Keith, I really appreciate your time today. I've learned a lot about the organization and I'm sure our listeners will also have learned a lot too once they listen to the episode. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for being here and uh, appreciate all the work that you guys are doing and look forward to riding with you next year. Josh, um, can't wait to see you on next year's fundraising <laughs> bike ride. Uh, you did an awesome job. I remember sitting by the campfire with you. So um, looking forward to seeing you do the bike ride and for all those folks that uh, love riding a great bicycle ride, join us on the great bicycle tour or keep tabs on our website because you'll be able to come to some of our great events, including the large community training that we're hosting in the spring. Awesome. Great. Thank you.